I uh, got so enamored of our conversation, I failed to hit record at the beginning. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Path Theological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. And if you caught that first little clip from my conversation with uh, Kevin Driver, then uh, you can affirm it's been a little bit since we've posted a a new podcast. I could go through a range of excuses or reasons, but here we are, and I'm glad you're listening, and uh, I'm going to say up front, you're a great audience, and uh, you stay with me even in those long, dry spells. You can uh, help me by leaving a rating and review uh, so that uh, as we're kind of recovering our rhythm of podcasting, We can remind folks that we're out there and you can help me do that. Today on the podcast, I am having a conversation with Dr. Kevin Driver. Uh, In the uh, intro bit, he gives uh, some descriptions of who he is, what he does, and so I'm going to forego that. Instead, I'm going to tell you that what I found interesting was as Kevin interacted with me on Twitter, which was really the... uh, evocation of this particular conversation uh, is is that thinking through a theological ethical uh, framework for healthcare, and it all started when uh, my friend Marty Duran, host of the Uncommentary podcast, which I suggest you listen more often to him than me, and he was. Uh, telling me some situations related to some healthcare things that they have going on. And, and I, just, I just couldn't believe that some of the ongoing wider cultural conversations uh, that are taking place, uh, we still haven't addressed the healthcare issue. All the way back to when uh, then uh, Hillary Clinton first lady was was working to see if we couldn't address some of our health care issues. And here we are all these years later, and we are not much better off. And so what, how, how, do, how should Christians think about health care, that is, providing it and sourcing it and how to view their own and that of others? So what better to do than have a conversation with a cardiologist? And that's exactly what we did. So... Here is my conversation with uh, Kevin Driver, and we'll have some notes on the other side. And again, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast of the pastor theologian. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Dr. Kevin Driver. Now listen, folks, the mic has been a bit dusty. The equipment, uh, I'm having to kind of get readjusted to hitting the buttons at the right time. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, someone who's never been on the podcast is willing to venture back into the interwebs of podcasting with me. So, Kevin, thanks for being on today. Yeah. Thanks, Todd. Now, when uh, um, folks went, I'm, I've met Kevin, uh, like this Zoom is the first time I've ever seen Kevin other than his avatar on Twitter. And so um, I had a cause to tweet something out and Kevin responded and then offered to come on and talk about as a, as a physician, as a cardiologist and a Christian to talk about a theological and ethical framework for talking about healthcare. So um, 
I want to, I want to know, Kevin, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourself? Uh, that way uh, folks can kind of uh, set the stage a little bit about why in the world would a, would a pastor think it's important to have a cardiologist on the podcast? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on Todd. Um, so yeah, so I'm, my name is Kevin Driver and I am a, a cardiologist in Charleston, West Virginia. I'm actually uh, my specialty within cardiology is, is cardiac electrophysiology. So that means that I manage patients with heart rhythm disorders. So patients that have pacemakers or defibrillators. Um, my background and, and how I've kind of uh, gotten connected with, with, with you is, is through uh, many people on, on, on Twitter who are involved in SBC life. So I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, a town called Greenville, and um, I went to a, a Southern Baptist church there, uh, was baptized at the precocious age of six, um, and spent most of my childhood there in that community and in that church. Um, and then uh, af- at that point, moved toward, to southeastern Pennsylvania in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, my family, my mother specifically is from Mennonite Anabaptist background. So I have a little bit of Baptist and a little bit of, of Mennonite Anabaptist. And, and for your listeners that, that may not know as much about the Mennonite and Anabaptist tradition is we're, we're very con- congregational. Um, we are, my, my, the, the Mennonite church that I went to in high school was absolutely evangelical in terms of the Bebbington quadrilateral, mm-hmm. but there are some additional features, primarily ethical features that go above and beyond what, what many Baptists would believe in particular pacifism. There's an emphasis on service and modest living and also um, some skepticism of, of involvement in, in the affairs of the state and a very strong sense of separation of, of, of the church from the state, the church is as, you know, as a, as a part of the kingdom of God in, in, in this world and as, as, as separate from that. So um, I went to Messiah University uh, as an undergraduate and ended up studying philosophy there. Um, I, I also did, of course, a number of science classes because I, I, I thought about uh, a career in medicine in part related to my father, who's a, a lung specialist. Um, but I really enjoyed thinking through um, deep questions about, about the world, about truth, about ethics, uh, and about theology. Um, so after college, went on uh, to medical school at Columbia in New York City. So a, a very different kind of social environment. Um, I had classmates from all over the country, uh, from all different backgrounds. Um, and living in New York is in your twenties is wonderful. There's there's so many uh, fascinating you know uh, diversions, um, but it was it was also very helpful for me as somebody who was from a kind of a, a Christian evangelical bubble to come into close proximity, to live and work among folks that have very different perspectives about about life, about about God, about the way that people should live. And I think it was particularly helpful for me to 
you know, to rub shoulders with and be in, 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 in really positive relationships with people that had very different, uh, different views. Um, and I think when you're in close proximity to folks, you, you can't help but develop a, a sense of, of mutual care and affection, despite, you know, despite potential differences that are real, but become less important, I think. Yeah. And um, in, in the course of uh, following you on Twitter and um, really finding your, your, you know, engaging and, and interested in a, a variety of events, whether it's Southern Baptist life and we do share that. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, for some who, depending on where they went to seminary and what sort of Baptist history they took are, are a bit aware of the Anabaptist thread in our uh, history. Uh, even if maybe it's, it's muted. Uh, but it, it's their, it's their present folks. Like I, I, I remember, um, in high school, uh, uh, wanting to attend a, a Bible study with a friend, uh, and and uh, my parents really concerned about about that, making sure that I didn't get anything I shouldn't get. You know, uh, made me call my uh, pastor, and uh, and and he actually was the emeritus. He was the retired pastor, but he is he's an older gentleman. He knew everybody who was anybody. And when I mentioned the name, he wasn't familiar, but he said this. He said, listen, if they're independent Baptists, you're okay. And if they're Mennonite brethren, they're okay. So, you know, from early on, I had this, I had this sense that, you know, there were some cousins out there that, that uh, my pastor, when I was very, very young, who baptized me, uh, thought it was okay to um, rub shoulders with the Mennonites. So uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to, to have that. And then I, I, uh, I did some adjunct work at uh, what's now Missio Seminary in uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia. And I met a young lady, really sharp, bright, working on her MDiv. And she actually was leading in a uh, Mennonite church. And we maintain a friendship to this day. And that's been, oh, wow, 15 years at least. So um, I'm appreciative of that particular aspect, uh, what you bring to uh, uh, any conversation about uh, issues of life. And uh, how to treat life. So all that to say that um, I noticed that 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 um, and and I think you've noticed that there there's been some erosion uh, of uh, confidence and trust uh, in 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 medical. Uh, I, I'm going to say medical experts because I would think that a cardiologist qualifies as a medical expert, particularly in in mm-hmm. a field that that is important to all of us. Uh, and 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 I've also at the same time sensed an erosion in trust in in pastors, depending on what a view they have uh, and their confidence in medical professionals. Mm. So, what do you yeah. think? What do you what do you think some of the the causes for that erosion um, are? Yeah, the, the last several years have been have been pretty eye opening, um, and uh, I. I th- I'm not sure that 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 all of this is new, and I think that that there may be fractures that are that are laid bare by the circumstances that have been there all along. Um, you know, there. What I've been disappointed with in 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 the, in the pandemic is is a 
a reality where churches all across the, the country um, are, you know, are representative of their communities. And mm-hmm. so you have teachers, you have engineers, you have, uh, you know, uh, office workers, <laughs> plumbers. I mean, all kinds of folks are in our churches, and that includes doctors and nurses. And um, I would like to think that having, you know, having brothers and sisters in Christ that we know in our local church body would, w- would give us a, a sense of confidence in, in, you know, their expertise and their guidance that you might not have for people that you don't know on, on a, you know, a regional or national stage for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, where this was illustrated to me this year was in, uh, in my father's church. Um, He, my father's been uh, very active in the life of his, this was, is a Mennonite congregation in Southeastern Pennsylvania for, for decades He's served on the board of elders and and on the the church council. And so, you know, people know him, whether he's, you know, best friends with everyone or not, but they certainly are acquainted with him. They understand him to be a person of integrity. Um, And, you know, he's, he's, you know, worked for a local hospital, you know, for all the time that he's lived there. Um, But it became clear during this past year that, that there was a different relationship and a different appreciation of, of, of him among the church. And as an example, in, in January of, of 2021, as the vaccines were available, but becoming available to a wider uh, uh, assortment of folks outside of you know, the, the, the very elderly and healthcare workers, where he was uh, approached and, and received a handwritten lo- note at home from a member of the church. And that uh, this member specifically asked him not to advocate for vaccination uh, to uh, this, this gentleman's parents, mm-hmm. uh, older parents. Right. And um, there wasn't, there was no, there wasn't anything threatening there. There wasn't any, you know, any insult or, um, uh, yeah, there was nothing rude, but it was a, a recognition of, hey, you have specific expertise and, and, and specific knowledge, and I don't want you to to be a source of, uh, of, of expertise in this, you know, church community specifically. So I would not have necessarily expected that. And, um, and, and, and my father's had very frank discussions with, with many folks, uh, in his church, in, including folks in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. And, um, and, and he's, you know, he's advocated for, you know, public health measures and, and vaccination out of really concern for their health. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, I think to him has been uh, disappointing that, that it doesn't seem like that, 
that has, has been able to break through for a lot of folks, not for everyone. And, and of course, this is just, you know, one example. I don't, I, I, I don't know, you know, th this is not like, a you know, so, you know, I, I don't know how widespread this kind of a, of, of a uh, attitude is, is, but I would, I would hope that the, the people in, in, you know, all across the country in evangelical churches, there are doctors and nurses and, um, and they are going to have a very similar theological framework as everyone else. And, you know, they should care about the health and well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So I just don't know why the trust hasn't been there for medical professionals in churches. And not, that's not to say that, it, that there's no trust. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know that it's there to the degree that it could be. Now, interestingly, there've been some surveys that suggest that, that a lot of evangelicals have a lot of trust in their pastoral leadership, which is good. But but I don't know that always that pastors are in the best position to be giving health advice. And that's fine, right? That's not, that's not what you're trained to do, right? So even, even pastors that are advocating are, are advocating on behalf of, you know, of other sources of expertise, basically. You know, Kevin, when you were talking about um, the, uh, situation where it, it seemed as though um, doctors or healthcare professionals weren't being trusted uh, as much. It was a little baffling, especially about health issues. And then, and then you remarked that, that it seemed to be statistically that there were still a good number of people who like trusted their pastors. But you're, you're, you noted importantly that pastors aren't healthcare professionals. And, and so while we want people to trust our pastors, we, we probably aren't wanting to rely on them about, is my gallbladder functioning properly? Uh, and so mm -hmm. um, what, what, um, what we found here, what, what I, I found here, in, 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 as I've got you know, friends across the country who pastor, that, that um, the trust that you're describing seems to be, from my vantage point, I trust you if you agree with me more than it is uh, sort of a, a blanket trust uh, by virtue of your vocation or calling or standing in a faith community. And, and, and what has puzzled me is, is that uh, from, from my side is, is that, that we probably as pastors should be actually advocating for our health professionals. That is, when we reach the end of our uh, expertise or our experience, and sometimes we overestimate both of those, we probably should be pointing to um, professionals like yourself who it, it does take a lot of years to reach a level to be able to say to someone, Let, let's talk about a pacemaker, let's talk about a defibrillator. We're trying to make sure you can live as functionally a healthy life as possible, as long as possible. 
And, mm-hmm. and so we should, we should actually, especially we who've frequented hospitals to visit uh, pa- uh, uh, parishioners uh, with a variety of health concerns, we, 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 we never have in the past gone into someone's hospital room and raise questions about the, the uh, uh, actions or suggestions or diagnosis or prescription of the doc medical staff, mm-hmm. except here we have, except in yeah, this I, th- we have. I think that's a great, that's a great point, Todd. I, I've thought about this some, and I, I think when you're, when you're seeking advice from other people, and this is whether this is true, I think in medicine, in uh, in spiritual life, um, with your money, um, with you know education, um, I think there's three factors that you look for in terms of of who are you going to get advice from that you can trust. Number one, you have to have you have to be knowledgeable. You have to have expertise. But what's interesting is in is in our current informational age. You know, you have you have Google, um, you have resources that are, that are um, unprecedented, I think, in human history, the, the knowledge that we have at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you don't have knowledge available. Um, it's what do you do with that knowledge? And so that's actually wisdom, right? And that is not something that you necessarily learn in school, <laughs> right? Right. So, I mean, there are really, really, really smart people who are just not practically oriented in terms of, of, you know, how do you translate what you know into action? And the final thing is that people need to know that, that who they're listening to has their interests at heart. Mm-hmm. So, um, what 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 is the word in the SBC? Fiduciary, right? Mm, yeah, yes, yes, yes. But but we want to know that when somebody's giving us information, that that they that they're not that that they're not doing it for personal gain, and that they're doing it for our benefit in light of our values, because mm-hmm. that's different too, because people have different value systems. So, so I think those three things are really important. Knowledge, wisdom, and then uh, I guess beneficence or. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think that pastors would have a lot of wisdom, but they may not have knowledge. Right. right. And, you know, if you see, you know, some unscrupulous folks, have knowledge and wisdom, but they don't, they're not seeking your good. Right. Yeah. Um, so when, when you address the, the, um, what's available to us in terms of knowledge. And like you said, you know, we, we haven't, mm-hmm. I've got, I'm looking at you on my laptop I, at my fingertips. I could, I could Google like a, a lot of things. I could come up with abstracts, professional periodicals, if I'm willing to pay mm-hmm. a particular, I, I can, I can do all that. Uh, but, but to your point, that, that doesn't mean I'm going to know exactly what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when, when we're getting back to 
kind of a, a, a rootedness in uh, your distinction that the aim is I've got your best interest in mind. I, mm-hmm. we, we now could actually uh, maybe look at a plank of a theological framework that mm-hmm. if I'm going to evaluate uh, who I'm going to trust with any body of knowledge in any experience, I really probably want to find out do whose interest are they preserving? Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what do you think um, has created um, such a um, skepticism toward um, your motives, even my mm-hmm. motives when, while we do, uh, vocationally different things. We are both rooted in, I'm looking for your best interest and you're looking for mine. Yeah. So that is an excellent question, Todd. And, um, I think that there has been some erosion of trust in, in institutions in America and healthcare is one. Obviously, government is another. And um, I don't know that people always have a completely well-formed sense for why the, that trust in those institutions erodes. But there are, there are definitely things that you can point to. Um, just this last couple of weeks, I've been uh, kind of immersing myself in my free time uh, in a couple series on uh, there's one on Netflix and one on HBO and HBO. There's a documentary called the crime of the century about the opioid uh, mm-hmm. epidemic mm-hmm. and the yes. way that, that Purdue pharma and the Sackler and the Sackler family in specific contributed to that. And then on, on Hulu, the more, you know, kind of dramatic telling of that story is dope sick. And I highly recommend those, mm-hmm. uh, th- those uh, programs, but for sure, People know that, that, that healthcare does not always necessarily have their best interest at heart. And in the United States, in particular, um, healthcare is, is big business, mm. is big business. And um, when we have competing interests, um, that certainly can erode that trust. And I I will say as a healthcare provider, almost all of the doctors that I know are, are upstanding people. But when you know that, that your compensation is tied to what you do for patients, it can unconsciously change Mm. what you do. Mm. And this is something that I think about in, in my life all the time. I am, I am paid based on what I do. So if I put in more pacemakers, I get paid more. Um, and I think if you don't have a, a strong, you know, rooted sense of, of integrity and character, you know, that, that can erode some, right? Um, and, um, and I think that's, you know, so what I've heard people 
you know, say about, for instance, vaccines, I'll say, well, you know, boy, Pfizer and Moderna, they're just making, you know, billions of dollars off this. And it is true. It is true. But uh, that's also how capitalism works. And if we want to spur people to, you know, to excellence in science, you know, incentivizing that financially is, is good. But by the way, I'm, I'm, we'll see, but I'm convinced that the, that the, the scientists involved in developing these vaccines are probably in line for a Nobel prize sooner rather than later. Yeah. Cause it's really, it's really been remarkable how both how quickly and also how safe and effective this is. I think that probably in decades to come, we'll, we'll recognize this as one of the, as, as probably the safest, um, the safest vaccine, you know, to be developed thus far. So, um, so I, but I, I do think that people are skeptical and I can understand that. I think there is a story also to be told with this opioid epidemic that the communities that have the greatest skepticism of vac- about vaccination mm-hmm. have been the communities that have, that have really suffered the harms mm. wow. of, of opiates and, and not only opiates, but, um, you know, but economic effects of of kind of 21st, 20th, 21st century American society in general. Wow. That's I'm, a good point. So I'm 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 sensitive to that here in, in Appalachia. So yeah. Man, that's a great point. I, I had not I had not actually kind of thought about that. When when you're describing, and this is what I want folks to listen to, especially pastors, it, it, the when when a when a a, a doctor can describe and is able to articulate that there's a connection between what I do and getting paid, every pastor should have perked up. Because we have to admit that um, oftentimes the things we need to say aren't said because we're fearful of the financial, our financial well-being. So it's a bit of a, a, a bit of a, you know, uh, there, there's sort of a common tension that um, though the the direction it works is different, it, it's still it's still a matter of if if I'm interested in you, and and there's and I'm refusing or failing to offer the better advice out of fear that you might not like my advice. In turn, you might not want to tithe next week, and you might want to go to another church. Uh, it's going to impair and and adjust my sense of how well I want you to be. And so, before pastors get on their high horse uh, about uh, big uh, uh, doctors and you know medicine in America being big business. We probably need to temper that arrogance a little bit with the fact that we've all sat in positions where the risk of giving some of that wisdom that we know to be true and trust and would give to anybody if they had less to give, we're we're jeopardizing that person's well-being. It, because they're actually coming trusting we're going to give credible, wise 
uh, hopefully spirit-led advice. So I, I think that, that one reason I wanted to raise that is, is where, where I sit as a pastor and observing kind of some of the high-profile instances where uh, vaccines have been undermined, they've been ridiculed, they've been, they've been mocked, scoffed, um, and, and where emotional arguments have been used to undermine logical and, 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 and more credible evidence, um, we have to be careful that, that we aren't actually subverting someone's well-being. And, and so I, I think that tends to, if, the, if, if a theological plank is our concern for the other's well-being, the ethical plank is to say, what, what action are you going to take as a result of that, no matter the risk? And so when, when, when you had mentioned a theological and ethical framework, that might not have been exactly what you had in mind in, in tweeting, but in our conversation, those seem to be two pretty significant planks. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a, que- you a question, Todd? Yeah, sure. So what is our, as believers, what is our obligation ourselves to our help? In other our, words, do we have an obligation to care for ourselves? Sure. I think, I think that at, at root, if, depending on how someone wants to kind of interpret it, but, but if, if, I'm, if the stage is going to be set that I want, I, want, I want you to be as well as I want to be well, if I don't want to be well, then I don't care if you're well. So certainly from, a, from, a, from one aspect of love your neighbor as yourself is I certainly don't want to deny you an avenue to the best health care available, especially if I'm working to have it for myself. Hmm. And yeah, so I, that, yeah, that's been my reflection, Todd, that it, it's, it's, it's an argument that's somewhat out of silence, right? Because right. the command of love your neighbor as yourself implies that you care for yourself. There's an implied sure. selfishness that's not bad, right. that's, that's appropriate. Right. And the other, you know, the other passage of this is just is in kind of a drive-by in Ephesians 5. It says, nobody oh, yeah. ever hated his own body, right. but fed it and cared for right. it. Right. Um, and, and so there's this, there's this implicit sense that we are going to take care of ourselves. And in, in the, um, in a lot of the discourse, um, among people that are, are, I think, trying to be very responsible in the pandemic in terms of public health precautions, it was about masking initially, and now about the vaccine, it's been about love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I don't deny that that's, that that's an ethical consideration, that, that healthy people that are getting vaccinated so that they, don't, they can't be infected and, and then infect others, I think there's an undeniable element of that. But what's, what, hasn't, what, what hasn't been portrayed that I think is, is from my perspective as a, as, a, as a healthcare professional is that in almost every situation, um, over the last two years, the, the most real 
threat to somebody's health as COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And um, so in, in, in medicine, there's, there's two ways to think about risk. Um, one is, is called absolute risk. And absolute risk is the, is the chance that, that you will get severely uh, affected by some disease. Or, you know, for instance, the, the, the risk that you could have a heart attack is you're, in a year, maybe your absolute risk is 1%. But there's another way to think about that in, in, in medicine, which is relative risk. And so um, some interventions um, will have a significant benefit for a condition that's pretty rare. So as just kind of an example, so say you're, you're a healthy um, 25-year-old. Uh, you say, well, my risk of getting uh, you know, severe COVID disease and ending up in the hospital is 2%. Now, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. Right. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's actually the, the percentage. Um, but if you, if you have an intervention that decreases that by 75%. Now your absolute risk after that intervention is 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Now for most average people, we don't think about that, the difference between 0.5 and 2%, those both strike us as well, really, really unusual, right? Um, but it's a pretty dramatic change, especially if you're talking about thousands, if not millions of people. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers start to add up there. And I think that, that this is where some of the kind of, th- there's a lot of ways which average lay people can you know, really understand and grasp um, you know, these concepts in, in medicine. But this is one that I don't think that people are able to grasp as well these the, the differences between you know uncommon or unusual events mm-hmm. so i would have i would have appreciated if if the the talk about covid and vaccination was oh you're healthy yeah it's unlikely that you're going to get sick but it could happen it mm-hmm. really could happen and you really should strongly consider, you know, getting vaccinated for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's a, and that's a good point because we have we have probably tried to think about it um, as a way to encourage consideration of the other, and 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 that is a that is a that is we have not heard that much. I want to I want to I want to kind of tie back to your um, reference to Ephesians five as a drive by, because because here's something interesting about Ephesians five that that I think may not be as much a drive by because I think the, the the location at which this reality is to get lived out is the church, and 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 in no other place like Ephesians five has has Paul laid out the call to mutual submission than, than he does in Ephesians 5. I mean, it is, uh, 4 and 5 particularly, it, there, there is no other place. Instead, what we do is we seize on um, 
uh, what what Paul uh, really asserts uh, at the end of five as as sort of, yeah, I'm not talking about this. I'm using this as an illustration. Instead, we take his illustration, go to see it as an illustration, and completely ignore the practicalities of mutual submission in the church. And and so we've not really kind of discipled ourselves well on on the core of mutual submission in favor of those particular places at which I can make sure my wife is submitting to me properly. And and I think I think that's dangerous. Second thing that comes to mind is maybe another location to think about that theologically is is if we have trouble to how to characterize the um, the Levitical law, we, it, 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 because we, because people will pick a few here and there and and hammer them and and forget that the the laws of cleanliness were for the good of the community, and they were for the community health. So don't eat shellfish wasn't because God did God didn't want the people to like shrimp. It, there, there, it, it was not practically healthy at that time to eat shrimp. So the the those laws that that get kind of construed in a particular way as if to say, man, I can't do all those things is is overlooked as being, listen, we are actually God's actually saying, take care of yourself. Take care of your health. Why no pork? Well, right now it's not really healthy for you, even though we've got a fetish with bacon here. Um, it, it's yeah. So I, I yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry to sorry no. to interrupt you there, but no. but um, but in Proverbs, Proverbs three, there's an illustration where of a personification of wisdom. Mm-hmm, yeah, and the illustration is that wisdom. In their right hand, they hold health and life. Mm-hmm. And in their left hand, they hold prosperity. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when we're operating in ways in accordance with wisdom, we're, we're going to operate in ways that, are, that, are, that are, are good for us bodies for our natural bodies but also for human flourishing in economics and right. you know all of these parts of human culture the arts uh you know etc so these things are not opposed right. they, they work together yeah that's excellent and and i mean we we you, we could probably have a little fun also talking about the way right hand and left hand is used in the old testament so that the power for flourishing in the right hand is for health and well-being, not sort of military might and strength. But if I'm my right hand, I am pressing and using all my energy for health. Then in my left hand, uh, the, the one that's considered the passive hand is actually, hey, here's how we're going to flourish. It, it, I mean, we could probably tease that a while. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Todd. I actually don't know which one is the right hand and which one is the left hand. I'm just, I was simply saying that, 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 that the illustration was that they, were, they held both, too. I don't know. And, and, <laughs> and we, I mean, we, that's all right. We, we can go back and look. I can always correct it in the notes. But it still, it still works that it, it still works that the relationship between human flourishing uh, and not is actually the well-being of the other person. Yep. And that it's not the well-being of the, of the other person by force. But it's by considering here's what you need and let's make provision for it. So um, I, I think there's a lot, a lot of um, uh, 
in the arc of God's story in, in a theological narrative that can be drawn on for uh, how we consider public health. And, and that um, most of the time, I think we are distracted from looking in those places, primarily because in public discourse, the issue is you're paying too much for your prescriptions which may absolutely be true. I mean, may absolutely be true. But if we're driving that conversation less about the financial uh, exorbitancy and more about the health uh, of of the person and that their health now is related to how much they're having to spend, we can work from the vantage point of what's better for you and not better because it's better on your pocketbook necessarily, although that is a health issue, um, we, we can, as pastors and Christians, uh, really kind of go to seed on healthcare as being a, a, a really significant risk. I mean, listen, I, I know that some people prefer to take uh, Jesus's miracles or signs in the New Testament and make them vehicles. But there's no indication whatsoever in anything that Jesus ever said that somehow diminishes the fact that he healed people. Zero. He was concerned about their health and well-being. So it's a little interesting that that we might not be for the sake of the person and only for the sake of what it's costing me. Um, invoke miracles, Todd. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to address one other, you know, aspect of kind of thinking about um, life and health that that could be helpful for for an audience that that has you know that's involved in pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'll give you a kind of an example that I've that I've dealt with at a number of different times in my career. Mm-hmm. And it is a scenario where a family member, often an older family member, is, is hospitalized and they have a very severe acute illness. And, you know, death is a real possibility. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in, in many times, the person is being supported, you know, perhaps with a ventilator, perhaps with, uh, you know, dialysis, which does the work of the kidneys. Um, perhaps they have a heart pump. Um, and, and that person may or may not even be able to participate in making decisions about themselves because they may not be conscious or, or, or able to think clearly. And what I hear from many people with a, uh, with a Christian background is that we want to do everything and, and when you when you ask them as a as a as, as a doctor, you say, well, "What? Why are you thinking that they want all of this done when they're seemingly at the end of life?" The answer that often comes back is, "We're waiting for a miracle." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, you know, I'm I'm a I certainly love Jesus. I believe. You know, I believe the gospels and uh, I believe that miracles happen. But 
I'm not sure that that way of thinking theologically is particularly helpful. Um, the, the wisdom literature has so much to say about this, where you have the, 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 the vivid imagery from Ecclesiastes, right, of, of you know, the body as a machine breaking down, right? Um, it just, uh, I, I, where it talks about the, the, the teeth grinding and, and the muscles in the body just slowly breaking down. And then, you know, in, in, in Psalm 90 um, is, is the wonderful passage from David where he says, teach us to number our days mm-hmm. that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And before that, he says, our days make, our, all our days pass under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. So, and then David says, you know, make us glad for as many, for as, for as much as we have left. He says, uh, you know, may the favor of the Lord God rest on us and establish the work of our hands. So there's this, there's a sense that we're, we're finite. And, um, and, and there's certainly a, a, a role in, in current evangelical discourse about the sanctity of life and how life is valuable. And that is undeniable. And mm-hmm. we need to witness to the value of life. But we also need to witness to a, a way of, of looking at our lives where we don't hold on too tightly either. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so we, we care for ourselves, but um, you know, but we're finite. And and by the way, when in these situations, when I when I deal with you know multi generational families, it's it's interesting that that elderly folks get this implicitly. <laughs> and often, what happens is the adult children or grandchildren are the ones that are pushing. You know. Yeah, why don't we do this, Grandma? Why don't we do this, Grandpa? And or 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 Dad or Mom? And um, and, and I think that's just a part of life that we you know we see our 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 when we're young we see our story one way. When we're middle aged we see our story another way. And when we're older we see it we have a new perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's a, you know, there's a cultural piece that plays into that. And that is we've, we've been influenced largely by a fear of death, which is kind of ironic for people who believe that death lost in the death of Jesus. So it, it's, it's, it is, it is a bit of an irony that, that um, not that we are, we are a flippant about life and well, you know, welcome uh, death and don't do what's, reasonably available but the idea that we push that as far as we do betrays uh confidence that we have that that uh jesus swallowed up death and uh and if that's the case then um you know okay let's 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 and by the way this is true of religious and irreligious folks exactly um i had a a mentor in residency and he, he was actually the, the, the former chair of medicine at Duke, which is a, a very high powered, you know, uh, program. And he's a secular Jew. 
Um, in other words, I, I think he's functionally probably atheist, but I, I, you know, I, I don't know how religious he was. But we, we had a discussion about end-of-life care, and he said, uh, you know, if I am in unable to express myself and communicate, if I'm in pain, if I'm immobilized, I want you to do everything because I believe <laughs> that when my life is gone, I'm, that's it, extinguished, right? And, um, and so his basic argument is something is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But even, even with folks that are secular, thoroughly secular, again, life and especially pain and suffering, you know, grinds you down to the point where where you know you you recognize that 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 your life is coming to an end and it's and in people in these situations it's not it doesn't feel as it, it is tragic but it doesn't feel always tragic mm-hmm. i will say you know there's kind of a natural a, a natural sense of that yeah 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 well, the the um, uh, the issue of of holding out for the miraculous um, uh, is is a um, we, you know I have to be careful. Obviously, I, I I think miracles are 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 possible in reality, but I, I think the way we frame them as though um, on this side of the resurrection and the giving of the spirit, that those things are actually outside interventions. And I, I'm not sure that we probably shouldn't phrase it more supranatural as opposed to supernatural, because in, in the realities of the kingdom, those things are natural. They just aren't natural to our, our experience and frequency of their occurrence. But those things happen within the natural. And and that's to say that with the incarnation and then the giving of the spirit, God's actually kind of invaded here and now. And so in the already not yet aspect of the kingdom, those things are reality present. Uh, we tend to kind of think that, I'm, you know, I'm kind of waiting on this external thing. No, no, they, they, they came, it, it's here. So when Jesus was doing that, they, he didn't say, wait a minute, I'm going to go get what I need and I'll be back. You know, uh, I'm going to go get some mud from, you know, above. He picked up the dirt and the ground and spit on it, you know, made clay. And and so I, I, I think we have to be careful in how, even how we uh, catechize or disciple people to think about the miraculous and in relationship to the kingdom. That, that uh, uh, if we think something's going to happen, then we have to, we have to also accompany that with the realities of the kingdom that are present which takes us all the way back a little bit to the beginning that mm-hmm. if, if um, uh, the other is important uh, and if kingdom people have seen that borne out in the ministry and life of Jesus, then the, the theological motivation is actually in the reality of Christ. And if, if, if we're almost saying no to that, if um, we have little care for the other, and and so I, I think it's I think that that's a um, 
a, a place where um, Christian uh, physicians like yourself and pastors who have conversation with people like yourself can arrive at a place to say, how can we actually talk about those things? Because I need your expertise about matters I know nothing. And together, the combined wisdom can actually be valuable when um, we enter into subjects and, and registers that um, I'm I'm less familiar than you or you than me. But together, mm -hmm. if our common interest is the well-being of another, then uh, maybe there's an advantage to something like that. Yep. You got it. Do you have any? Uh, the, the only thing I would the only yeah. thing I would add is that yeah. is that when I the only thing I would add is that that when you see miracles in in the scriptures they they are supernatural in that they don't obey the laws of physics and nature yeah but they don't fall outside of a of a bigger narrative right and and so you don't th there are very <laughs> few miracles that are totally extravagant Right. 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 Um, it's, it's not like this trippy hallucinogenic, you know, <laughs> uh, you don't have that it, very, right. very often. I mean, there's maybe a couple, you know, scenarios where it's something just, you know, just to be blown away, mm -hmm. but it's actually in service of, 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 a, of a bigger narrative. Oh, sure. And so, and, and so, you know, related to this, um, you know, and I think that people look for meaning, you know, in, in their health too, where, um, you know, it, it's, it's probably not, you know, the person in their, you know, at the, at the end of their life that you'd expect to see the miracle necessarily either, because, you know, maybe it's, it, we, we like to have, you know, stories of this is, you know, this person, you know, recovered from cancer and then look, sure. you know, look, look how that impacted, you right. know, their community, their family, et cetera. All right. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, listen, I, you know, we, uh, I, I don't want to take uh, advantage of, of more of your time, but I, I do want to put this on the table. It, when you have one of those moments where it's like, you know, this would make another good conversation for a pastor mm -hmm. to have on a medical subject issue theme that's rolling around in your mind, just promise mm -hmm. you'll uh, message me, email me, uh, flag me down on the interwebs and say, Hey, it's time. And uh, I'd love to do this again. Of course. I'm, I'm working on a, I have a couple um, kind of tweet threads that may develop, may develop into an essay at some point, And I okay. can bring those to your attention. Yeah, ah, sure. That'd be, that'd be awesome. That, that, that would be fantastic. Well, all right. So, um, folks, uh, I'll, I'll uh, have this edited. Uh, I'm going to confess to you in public. I uh, didn't have the record on at the beginning, so we're gonna we're gonna sign off here in a minute, and then we're gonna go back and re record our intro again uh, because Kevin's gracious like that. So, I want uh, we'll get this posted, uh, Kevin. I'll let you know, and and you can share it around because I think uh, these sorts of conversations are helpful. I know, let me put it this way: as a pastor, they're helpful to me. Because uh, uh, particularly in these moments where um, at least one of the underlying issues is um, how can we help retain a confidence in those who provide for our health care and try to thwart any sort of uh, undermining, even if 
we have some uh, accounts of a form of capitalism that makes us skeptical. We still need to cultivate trust because our folks, uh, I, I, you know, one of our, one of our ladies uh, discovered she had uh, a breast cancer this week and, and my brother's got to have his gallbladder uh, out. So this, that's just in Mm. one week. So there are all Mm. sorts of things always ongoing Mm. that, you know, we, we really need some help thinking this way and, and we can't depend on Google. We, yeah. we really need to talk about a pra- to a practitioner that can help us think carefully. And you've done that with us today. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Todd. Thanks. Yep. Thanks for listening. Yes. Thanks for listening. Glad you uh, joined in. And if you have a, a comment, a question, uh, maybe something that you'd like uh, Kevin and I to discuss in the future, he's working on uh, an article or two. And I think we're going to get back on and have a conversation uh, about those subjects. Uh, going to uh, add a Substack newsletter to Pathological. I'm working on a few pieces so that we have some in hand to offer. And uh, we're just going to start that out. It, it seems to be uh, maybe a way to uh, stir up some good conversation around the themes and subjects that we tackle here. Just to let you know, I have uh, um, working on finishing up uh, a book by... Uh, Alan Noble. It's his second book, You Are Not Alone. And uh, we'll have a podcast with him. I'm hoping to have uh, a podcast with Brian Zond over his new book, uh, When Everything's on Fire. And I think you would really, really like that. And then there are some others along the way that we're working toward. And uh, and then we might throw in a few friend podcasts. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to, to having a conversation with my friend Ken Tanner as we approach the season of Advent, uh, among others. So uh, one reminder, if you would help us out by going over to iTunes and leaving a rating and review, it would, it would uh, kind of reinvigorate interest in the podcast and maybe uh, help us... Uh, Uh, get some exposure to others who might benefit from uh, a podcast related to uh, exploring the intersections of life and faith. And as always, it's okay to share the podcast. So until next time, this has been Todd Littleton. Peace.